0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
2: You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world, it holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
3: so crazy
0: about it's just music
4: Jim most of the mainstream music industry attention goes to New York and LA so this week we give a little love to the
5: rest of the country I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune and I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org we're taking a summer road trip to three of our favorite music cities then Greg will add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox That's all coming up today on Sound Opinions.
4: From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you are listening to Sound Opinions and time now for some music news.
1: Wise men say only fools rush in
6: But I can't
5: help Falling in love with you Greg, Shall that of course is the king, Elvis Presley, with Can't Help Falling in Love. ...from Blue Hawaii, a classic, if ever there was one, written by a songwriter named George David Weiss. Mr. Weiss has just died at the age of 89. His name is attached to a long list of some of the most important pop hits of the last century and a half. In addition to Can't Help Falling in Love... What a Wonderful World, first recorded by Louis Armstrong, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, Immortalized by the Tokens. If you've got kids, you've heard it in that Disney movie recently. There was a little controversy with that one. It actually was initially the work of a African songwriter named Solomon Linda, who had adopted a traditional Zulu tune. Underscores, I think, the, the difficulties of copyright and songwriting and what is new? Is there anything new ever under the sun? George Weiss would spend a significant portion of his career working on these issues long before the digital revolution as uh, president of the Songwriters Guild of America for almost two decades. But there's no denying that Mr. Weiss had a tremendous amount of talent. He had what they call the business ears. And if we look at just one tune, What a Wonderful World, in 1967 Louis Armstrong's career, he was considered a fossil. You know, the jazz innovations of his early career were done, they brought him this song and they said, we want to have you sing. It's not going to be about the trumpet. We want to have you really put your personality into it. And it resurrected his career. A lot of people said, is this a statement of sarcasm? Is this really a statement about the civil rights movement and racism in America? The tune would later be revived for Good Morning Vietnam. Is this a comment about the horrors of? america's war at that time i had this conversation for hours and hours with wayne Coyne, leader of the flaming lips as you know you start talking to wayne and it, it lasts a day or two right He always said he resented that people in the hip indie rock world of of 1990, when their album In a Priest-Driven Ambulance came out, always thought he was doing a Sonic Youth, like when Sonic Youth covered the Carpenters and they were really making fun of that music, when uh, The Lips did What a Wonderful World. But he said this was the perfect encapsulation of my philosophy. I, I do think life is amazing. I love this song. The Flaming Lips covered it because we wanted to celebrate it. So I think it's a good way to celebrate George David Weiss. Here are the Flaming Lips with the song first recorded by Louis Armstrong What a Wonderful World.
7: I see trees are green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, think to myself, myself. What a wonderful world I see skies are blue And clouds are white The bright blessed days and dark sacred nights myself
4: what a wonderful world. that is what a wonderful world a classic version of a classic song by the flaming lips in tribute to George Weiss dead at the age of 89
1: one two three four five six roll, 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 roll. miles an hour. Gonna drive past the shop with the radio on.
5: Roadrunner, Roadrunner, Faster Miles an hour, Greg. That is one of the all-time great road trip songs. We've paid homage to it many times on Sound Opinions. Nothing says summer vacation, in my opinion, like a great rock and roll road trip. I have had this experience of climbing into a van with three or four buddies and touring as an indie rock band would. I've been talking to you about doing a Sound Opinions road trip forever. I say (laughs) we get in the van and we go, maybe next summer. Right now, we thought we'd close the summer of 2010 with a great rock and roll road trip, going from coast to coast, visiting some of the finest music cities in America. Perhaps not the ones that always get the mainstream media attention, but they have incredible, vibrant scenes there. We want to check in from left to right with Baltimore, Memphis, and Portland on this show. Hey.
8: Is it simply shocking? Is it done too well? Now a like to watch and Is it awfully gnarly? Hop some barley. Ooh child. who are we? Godly? Sorry, is it
2: not enough? Is it just too much? Is it out of touch or is it the touch? Is it that creation? <laughs>
4: that's Dan Deacon with a track called Horse from his 2008 album Rompst. and he's a great artist to represent the city we're going to go to first, Baltimore his Wham City Collective is a driving force in that city's art and music world along with Beach House and Spank Rock who you also heard in that sequence of music they've established Baltimore as not just a place for great music but a place for innovative and experimental sounds and a perfect place to begin our summer road trip across the country
5: I couldn't agree more, Greg, and to give us the inside scoop on Baltimore, we are joined by Sam Sessa, an entertainment writer with the Baltimore Sun and the host of Baltimore Unsigned on WTMD, and we actually just launched on WTMD. So we want to give a warm welcome to the listeners in Baltimore, and of course, a welcome to you, Sam. Thanks, guys.
4: So a lot of hype about Baltimore these days. last four or five years, one of uh, the central music cities in America How much of that is hype? How much of that is reality, Sam?
8: I think there's a lot of reality to it. With anything, it can get overblown kind of in the mainstream media. But there's definitely some reason for some celebration here in Baltimore.
5: We've been excited. I mean, we've had Dan Deacon on the show and Beach House. You you know, Sam, I guess the big contradiction is that it remains a great city, but a troubled American city. To what extent is that making it a fertile ground for the music scene? I think in any city
8: where you don't have a lot of infrastructure, and certainly not as much infrastructure as, say, like a New York or a Chicago, certain things fall through the cracks. And, you know, that can be good, that can be bad. For the art scene, I think it's been good because there's a lot of burned out warehouse spaces where people can go and rent and throw these massive parties. And it's very cheap to live here overall. And it's very unpretentious, too.
5: The city doesn't crack down on the uh, DIY venue scene?
8: Well, they do and it's there's a saying, it's not a win City show if it doesn't get shut down. But <laughs> but in Baltimore, there's a lot of places to hide, and there's a lot of places for art scenes to really grow.
4: Are you talking about primarily shows at unconventional venues? I mean, are there any legit places to play in town, or how does that work?
8: There are still a ton of DIY spaces. Five years ago, that's mostly true. But in the past few years, we've started to see a number of legitimate bars and clubs open, and they also double as performance spaces. Our new mayor made it easier to get live entertainment licenses for bars and clubs, and we've also seen the rise of this new neighborhood called the Station North Arts and Entertainment District, and that's kind of been a a breeding ground for a lot of the music that we've seen to come out of Baltimore in the past couple years.
4: What's been the best stuff that you've seen in the last year or two? What kind of bands do we need to be hearing about now that the rest of the country is going to be knowing about in about a year or two?
8: Sure. Well, you guys mentioned some of the heavy hitters in Beach House and Dan Deacon, but uh, for me, some personal favorites, Double Dagger. Double Dagger signed a Thrill Jockey, and Thrill Jockey's kind of picked up a lot of Baltimore bands. They're a punk trio that has some really, really cutting stuff. They had a song that came out a couple years ago called Luxury Condos for the Poor. This is when we were still kind of in the boom. Yeah. didn't make as much sense as it does now but you know the whole song is about here we are building all these massive condos that people can't afford and they're just going to sit there idle and vacant and uh, you know we should just go ahead and give them to struggling artists and poor people because then at least somebody would be living in them (laughs) on the rock front the band that really excites me the most is J. Roddy Walston and the business have you heard of these guys no they're, like, about as raw rocket that you can get. I mean, you talk about, like, Jerry Lee Lewis, hmm. kind of the piano stylings, and you could call him a piano rock band, but the piano isn't the showcase there. It's still very much a guitar band, but they have a pianist, and the front guy is Jay Roddy, and he plays a killer piano. Doesn't solo, just hammers it out, just like you would the guitar parts. Now
3: I've been threat, doing all kinds of evil. Now you hate me, baby, but don't break the needle,
8: I've seen them live a handful of times, and the place is always sold out. The vibe is amazing. Uh, they're one hell of a band. There's another group called Y-Oak. They're a duo that signed to Merge. Um, it's a female guitarist and a drummer, and they're dating. And the dynamics between the two of them and the sound that they're able to create with just two instruments is, is you know, it's really remarkable. In This is one of the brightest spots, I think, in Baltimore music history, going back 40 years. I mean, I've done some digging and talked to some old hats from back in the day. And what they said is while Baltimore had these kind of pockets, the city's music scene never really gelled to the extent that it has right now, or at least in the past few years. What explains that? Um, I think it was a combination of different things. When you talk about Wan City, which were a catalyst for a lot of bands to kind of rally around, they all moved to Baltimore from SUNY Purchase in New York in about 2005, I believe it was, maybe 2004. And uh, they all moved down here because it was cheap and because it seemed like a good place for them to move. They were sick of the pretentiousness of New York. And they started setting up shop and doing these really random colorful shows and warehouses and stairwells and all these different weird places around town. And in the past couple years... I'm actually seeing and reporting on people who have moved to Baltimore just to become a part of the the art scene here. And that, to me, is kind of a sign that we've made it.
4: Well, I guess the keys to that, because we've seen this happen in other cities where people start to flock to a city to, to play. One, cheap rents. I mean, it must be relatively affordable to live there. Secondly, plenty of places to play and rehearse and uh, a little bit of buzz around the scene. It sounds like Baltimore's got all three things going for it right now.
8: Yeah, it does. And I don't know where we're going to be in five years. Wham City and, and that whole collective there, they did this annual festival called Wardscape, which was the, kind of their response to the city's arts festival, which is called Artscape. And they did five years of it. And each year it got bigger and bigger. And this year they said, this is it. We're done with it. We're going to try something else next year that's totally different than this because we don't want it to become an institution.
5: How about on the uh, hip hop, tip Sam I mean what most of us know about the black communities in in Baltimore comes uh, I'm sad to say from the wire right Um, I roll (laughs) yeah yeah I know I know but um, is there a hip-hop scene
4: spank rock and black star I mean those are the names that people talk about Well, yeah beyond that have we got a a pretty vital scene
8: no we don't Baltimore hip-hop artists still seem to be stuck in that cycle where a promising act breaks out a major label swoops in signs them puts them on a shelf and nothing ever happens. And mm-hmm. until we can kind of bring the hip hop industry to Baltimore in the same way that Atlanta's done, I don't think we're ever going to see kind of a, a break in that cycle. For a while there, there was a duo called Darkroom Productions, and they did a lot of the music that you hear on The Wire. And they came about as close as anybody did to really putting Baltimore on the map in terms of hip hop.
2: But it's past time, so be more stand-up. Got them on every word, hand.
4: Sam Sess as an entertainment writer at the Baltimore Sun, and he talks about new Baltimore bands every week on WTMD's Baltimore Unsigned. Sam, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Thanks, Jim and Greg. It's been great.
1: Well, we know.
5: Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll continue our coast-to-coast rock and roll road trip, checking in with folks in Memphis and Portland. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from the Beauty and the Beast duet team, Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we are continuing on our summer road trip.
5: I'm sure listeners have guessed from that montage, but we are going to Memphis, Tennessee next. What a great American music city. Maybe you're saying, yeah, we all know about Memphis. Why are you taking us there? Well, you know about the history. Sun Studios. There would be no rock and roll without what Sam Phillips did there with Elvis Presley, with Jerry Lee Lewis, with Johnny Cash, with Roy Orbison. Then, of course, you have Stax Vault. What Motown was to black pop music in terms of the groove and the gloss, Vault was in terms of the grit, the soul, represented there in our montage by Booker T and the MGs and Green Onions. There was other sounds, too, though, you know? Alex Chilton grew up in Memphis loving the British invasion and brought us Big Star, without whom power pop would not exist. A lot of sad headlines out of Memphis recently. We've had to mourn the deaths of of some great Memphis artists. Chilton at the top of that list with Jay Retard, the underground punk musician, producers Willie Mitchell and Jim Dickinson. I think when a city has such a rich legacy, there's a danger of people thinking only in terms of the past. But there is a present. Memphis is vital and alive and thriving. A lot of great new music being made there. To get a handle on that, we decided to turn to Bob Mayer, who is the rock critic at the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Bob, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Let's start in general with the the health of the Memphis music scene. You know, you did time in Chicago as a critic at the Chicago Reader. How does it compare? How does the underground, grassroots music scene in Memphis, uh, how is it doing these days?
9: You know, Memphis, to the world at large, is, probably has a different image than what, you know, sort of the day-to-day realities are. I think we're sort of known primarily because of the music tourism, you know, your Graceland, your Stacks, uh, Sun Records, the Beale Street sort of experience. Of course, that's more geared towards tourists and folks who come in for things like Elvis Week, which just just passed. The day-to-day Memphis is that there is a kind of residue of this great history that we have here of R&B and blues and soul and, and even a sort of garage rock tradition dating back to the 60s. And some of that is there's a good sort of, I guess you'd say, cross-generational sort of uh, relationship. You know, bands like the Bokies, which have done a lot of soundtrack work, have backed a lot of uh, legacy artists like William Bell and so forth. That's a group that's sort of comprised of older artists, stacks veterans, and and younger younger guys playing together. And so, you know, that's that's one aspect of it. But we do have a sort of healthy music scene, as you mentioned. Obviously, the, the passing of Jay Retard was a pretty major blow as he was kind of the big up-and-coming star in town and seemed poised for some pretty interesting projects. I guess I would say right now it's it's a little bit of a transitional point although generally Memphis is healthy it's it's hard to compare it you know to Chicago because Memphis even though sort of it feels like a sprawled out relatively big place is kind of a fairly small community and even more so because like I say there is a kind of dialogue between sort of different generations of musicians in town.
4: You've got a rich legacy there Bob as as everyone knows I mean between the Sun Studios and Stax Records and things like that I mean just uh hugely influential in the development of various strains of popular music for the last uh, half century how much does that tradition influence or weigh down what's happening musically there
9: right now i think i think that's that's true greg i think the thing that is carries over here in Memphis is the sort of overall spirit. I mean, when you look at Sun, you look at Stacks, you look at, you know, even uh, Goldwax and other other great 60s labels, there was a sort of kind of Maverick spirit guiding all that. And I think that's present very much in sort of modern day Memphis. We have our own sort of modern versions of those things, and things like Goner Records, which is a local uh, record label and a retail store. And they've been doing a tremendous amount of work, both in terms of the things they've been releasing with people like uh, Jack Oblivion and uh, Harlan T. Bobo and, and a, a lot of local singer songwriters. And so I think it's more that that spirit sort of carries over in terms of, I don't, I don't feel like people here are weighed down by it as much as sort of it may seem.
5: Let's talk about some of the young up-and-coming bands that you're excited about, Bob. There's a group called the Magic Kids, which is about to release an album on, on Matador
9: Records. Are you into them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting thing. Again, it's sort of about perception and reality. I mean, the big thing, at least that the world at large has been catching up with, is kind of Memphis's trash rock and garage rock legacy, which kind of started in the, in the mid-90s with a band called The Oblivions. But, you know, the Magic Kids, even though they sort of come out of that sort of general environment, they're much more of a surf pop and a kind of almost bubblegum pop sound. It shows a different side of Memphis musically than, than some of the stuff that, uh, you know, we're known for. The
2: Super Bowl.
9: There's a couple other different kinds of uh, – different groups of singer-songwriters in town. There's a, a Jack Oblivion and the Tennessee Jerkers. He's a sort of former member of the Oblivions. He's doing more of a roots pop thing now. There's a guy called John Paul Keith in the 145s. He was one of the founding members of the V-Roy's, who you might remember as being a band from Knoxville that Steve Earle signed. and mm. He's gone and done his own thing, kind of uh, very much in the Nick Lowe rock pile tradition here. And uh, there's a guy called Harlan T. Bobo Who spends part of his year in Europe now He's just married a European woman But he's based out of Memphis And he's kind of in the Tom Waits, uh, Leonard Cohen Sort of singer-songwriter vein Here in your field old oh man The grass still
3: grows The stars still burn Oh man. Despite what's been done, oh man, the rabbits run,
9: the wind still blows, oh man. So, uh, you know, that you, you get a mix of things, although, you know, really the, there's a lot of Memphis in what everybody does out here.
4: What about off the beaten track kind of scenes? Are, are there any kind of offshoots where you see it just completely coming out of a sort of a nowhere situation where it doesn't, it has nothing to do with the with the traditions in, in Memphis and is kind of starting its own thing, almost in rebellion
9: uh, to that tradition? The the Memphis hip hop tradition, and it's you know, the one thing we haven't discussed, is 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 huge. You know, sort of the whole aesthetic. I mean, obviously that got the most attention with Three uh, Six Mafia and their Oscar win. But, you know, Memphis hip-hop is a very distinctive sort of sound and, and style, very much a southern sort of thing. I mean, that is still thriving. I think the success of Three Mafia, Yo Gotti, and a number of other people may have—I uh, don't know if that's put the thing, the genre at a standstill, but certainly there's a lot of new acts coming out of— out of, you know, Memphis hip hop, which, you know, kind of seems to exist in its own world in a way outside of the Memphis music uh, industry as such.
4: What about the Grifters? I got to ask you about them. I thought (laughs) they were one of the great bands out of Memphis in the early to mid 90s. (laughs)
9: Well, you know, actually they still sort of exist. Dave Shouse, who was one member of the Grifters after that, he had the Bloodthirsty Lovers and a couple other acts. Actually, two-thirds of the Grifters exists in a band here called the New Mary Jane. And in fact, just this this last summer, there's sort of been kind of a renaissance of the old Antenna Club, which was kind of the big independent rock club here throughout the 80s and, and early 90s, and, you know, it was kind of a second home to the Grifters. And they, New Mary Jane, did a set of Grifters songs. The Grifters, uh, you know, they had, I guess, like the uh, Uncle Tupelo breakup, of, of sort of a not very amicable breakup. So mm. the full Grifters have yet to reunite, but they, they sort of exist uh, still here on the scene in different permutations.
5: So, if I'm coming down to Memphis to visit you, or anybody else is, uh, Bob Antenna Club's place to check out. Any place else is a must see.
9: Antenna Club is actually no longer there. They sort of did a kind of reunion at the spot where the old Antenna Club is. The club that sort of carried on the tradition of the Antenna in a real way is uh, the High Tone Cafe, which is kind of in the Midtown area, and that's really um, kind of the big spot in terms of you know independent music, live original music locally. There's also a new venue in the Midtown area called Minglewood Hall. And then, of course, you know, you'd be remiss if you came to Memphis and you didn't visit a few of our sort of historic spots. Uh, first and foremost, I think the Stacks Museum, yeah. which is just an amazing experience for those who've never been. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much you know about Stacks. It's just a, it's a great museum and, and beautifully set up and, and curated. So that's definitely something to see. And then, of course, you know, depending on whether uh, you've, you've enjoyed the Elvis Graceland <laughs> experience or not, <laughs> that is definitely something to see as well.
5: Well, we're looking forward to taking a trip
9: down there, Bob. That sounds good, fellas.
5: Bob Mayer from the Memphis Commercial Appeal, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions.
9: Appreciate it.
7: Turn to fur, yeah, and my thoughts
3: they were turned to instinct and obedience to
7: God
4: Jim we've hit the Pacific side of the country on our sound opinions road trip and if you're familiar with those songs you know we're in Portland Oregon that's fur by the Portland band Blitzen trapper. Before that, you heard the Decembrists and one of the bands that kicked off the whole wave in Portland right now, Sleater Kinney. In the past few years, the city has emerged as one of the country's biggest music scenes, rivaling its neighbor to the north, Seattle. In fact, its music community is thought to be so inviting that they've got lots of bands and artists moving into the city to establish their, their careers. We're talking about people like Spoon and the Shins and Stephen Malcolmus. So the question is, what has helped make Portland such a great rock city in recent years? And to help answer that question, we're joined by Casey Jarman, the music editor at Portland's weekly newspaper, The Willamette Week. Casey, welcome to the show.
6: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
4: So, Casey, a lot of music coming out of Portland. What is it about the city that's attracting all these bands?
6: I mean, I think a lot of it is just reputation, not just musically, but it's got a pretty lively food scene and theater scene and, and kind of just arts scene in general. So I, I think the reputation goes a long way, and then people find that they can still rent a studio apartment for 600 bucks. For a mid-sized to big city, it's still a real reasonable place to live. I think a lot of bands will tell you that, you know, it rains so much here that there's just nothing else to do other than sit in your basement and, and make records. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's, I hear that time and time again, that that's their, that's their inspiration, is that they, they're not going anywhere nine months out of the year.
9: Yeah.
4: So you've got all these established bands there. Is there still a room for the grassroots type of acts to play out and get noticed by the local media?
6: Yeah, definitely. I mean, just a few years ago, our paper, Willamette Week, was only local. We were just covering local bands. We eventually kind of went back to writing about more national acts just for diversity's sake, but we never had a moment where we were out of things to write about. I mean, they keep moving here, and they keep forming, and side projects keep happening. It's pretty overwhelming. You know, as far as the club scene, if you're 21 and up, it's great, and there are a lot of bars for bands to play, even now with all these extra acts moving to the city. But uh the all ages scene is a little bit trickier right now. It's they're having some some problems. A lot of venues have closed and there's not really one good home for music for kids to go out and see. So that's that's probably the biggest challenge right now in Portland.
5: This is a chronic problem across America. Yeah. Because you know the age of when people are most excited to go out and see live music and you can't get into a club until you're twenty one Now, Greg and I get the touring itineraries for lots of underground bands crossing the country. I've seen a lot of, like, house parties and stuff.
6: Yeah, absolutely. There's a really thriving kind of house show basement scene, and it's largely in in north and northeast Portland, which is kind of, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump from where most of the major clubs are.
2: Mm -hmm. So
6: they're a little bit off the radar. And in general, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but in in general, the authorities have been pretty, uh, they've allowed these parties to go on and... There haven't been a lot of crackdowns or anything. And you know, I've been to a lot of them, especially in the summertime. It's amazing how much these kids really want to hear the music. They're not there to drink and party. They're they're really there, you know, you'll go see a, a folk group play at some basement show and everyone's just dead quiet, you know, a lot quieter than you than you would get in a bar show. So there's definitely a demand for it, and it's just a matter of finding a just finding a business model that'll that'll work for people has been the toughest thing, I think.
5: There's a reason they call it the underground, yeah.
6: Yeah, yeah, there really is. What about in the hip-hop world? Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I started covering when I first started writing for Willamette Week about five years ago. There's a lot of really good stuff. Very few groups have broken through to the mainstream. Cool Nuts is this uh, MC who's kind of like the, the godfather of the Portland hip-hop scene. But uh, apart from Lifesavers, who've had some moderate success, and there was a group in the 80s called You Crew who had one big hit, it's been really, really under the radar. But there are a lot of great groups here. There's a group called Sand People that has a lot of different tentacles that's that's done well locally. And Soul P is another really nice MC from here. Yeah, yeah,
7: they want to stop me from breathing. Stop me from eating, but they love my flavor. Homie, I'm a season. I was once a little boy, not a boy, done manned up. Face to face with any man, I'm going to stand up. That's what I stand by, my propaganda, my language is broken, but you understand, sir, I'm not the man square, I'm the commander, the light and the dark, why you all this lamp up, me and my camp's up, ready for the pump brush, left back, right front, all air covered up, I don't even rush a of a line brush.
4: That's always the issue, if you're not London or New York City or Los Angeles, is the issue of infrastructure. Right. It's one thing to Absolutely. have a scene, what's it like there for band starting out?
6: Well, it's a mixed bag, especially being so close to Seattle. I, I think oftentimes the dialogue you hear is that Seattle, since before the grunge explosion, or how, however you want to call that, that's always, t- the word grunge around here is like a dirty word. Yeah, you, <laughs> uh, don't, you don't use that word. You don't, you don't use it. Yeah, I'll probably lose some scene points for just saying it once. Uh, <laughs> no, we noticed
5: that it was in quotes. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
6: <laughs> right. But in Seattle, they really built up an infrastructure, and not just labels, which, of course, there's the sub-pops, and now there's the souks and a lot of independent labels that have done really well, but also the venue world that we were talking about earlier. So there's certainly like a kind of a model there, and there are gatekeepers in that scene. And in Portland, you know, even now with a lot of established acts, there are a few really great small labels, but none of them are really gatekeepers for the entire scene. Everyone kind of does their own thing. It's kind of like the Wild West. Like everybody's doing it for themselves. A lot of bands are on their own labels and still doing doing pretty well or they're on labels from other cities and and doing pretty well. But it definitely doesn't have the sort of power structure that a Chicago might have or or New York City has. If you want to make a great album, you just record it in somebody's basement. There are a lot of great engineers here and recording studios here, too. And then you just kind of throw it out there. And it really feels democratic in that way, which is one of the things I like about the Portland music scene. So
4: what are the acts we're going to be hearing about in the next couple of years coming out of Portland?
6: Let's see, I think there's a band called Typhoon that's doing really well locally, and I, I've been watching them since they were little kids. They, they started in Salem, which is just south of Portland, and they were all in high school when they started up. Depending on the night, they're like an 8- to 12-piece band, really big band. Wow. Um,
5: <laughs> so kind of Decembrous uh, orc pop? Or?
6: There's some of that in there for sure. They have a lot of horns, uh, a lot of strings. I'd compare them to, like, Calexico is maybe the closest uh, mm. sonic Hallmark because they have some Latin flair And, you know, depending on the tune Some of them are real operatic Sometimes they sound like Chardet, you know Sometimes they're real <laughs> soulful and, and, uh, and deep
2: I've started <laughs> a new beginning like the old wood Only this time I'm ready In my vessel a final
5: so those kids are just are just great how about this band that has the uh, most un name uh, <coughs> since since chick 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 they're called And, and, and?
6: Yeah, and, and, and. Yeah, that's a really fresh one. I mean, those guys, they've only been on my radar for a year, but they're great. They're just really rowdy, really fun. I mean, they're one of those bands that started off in basements and kind of worked their way up to small venues, and they're one of the few bands locally who kind of have a sound that I feel like could really catch on with fans of, like, the Arcade Fire or Wolf Parade, bands like that. Mm. They kind of fit into that sound, that kind of schizophrenic. Rock sound that's big right now, but they also do their own thing. They're real unhinged. Their live shows, they usually wind up breaking down their drum set and passing it out through the crowd or, <laughs> you know, falling off stage and running around taking their shirts off. So, so they're really fun.
5: I see a lot of people wonder if perhaps Portland's uh, rock world is getting too big. Where do you see the scene going? I think there's a
6: it's kind of at a crux right now, where a lot of different elements of the local music scene are kind of trying to figure out how to make some real money off of it and how to rein it in a little bit and, and take some ownership over it. And it's interesting to watch. It seems like there's a new venue opening up every week. And so it, at some point, there'll be a tipping point where some of them close, some of them don't make it. And it's interesting to see that change happening. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes.
4: Casey Jarman is the music editor at the Willamette Week. And uh, Casey, thanks for being our Portland guide on Sound Opinions. Thanks a lot, guys. If you want to talk about your own music town or comment on anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. Jim and I will be back with a review of the new album by Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
5: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called "Time of the Season" from the new album by Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan. Their third as a team. They have been together for some time, doing the sort of Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood thing. Of course, Lanigan had been the the vocalist for the Screaming Trees, Seattle grunge era giants. He sang with Queens of the Stone Age. He has a busy solo career. Campbell was the cellist and one of the vocalists in Belle and Sebastian, the UK orc pop duo. Together, they put a twist on the Hazelwood-Sinatra relationship in that it is Campbell who is driving this project. She's writing the songs. She's arranging the tunes. She's acting as producer and overseer. And she is using, as Hazelwood would use Nancy Sinatra, Lanigan as her uh, boy toy, you know, her (laughs) gruff-voiced singing voice. And she just puts him to work. And this time, on their third effort together, they are bringing some other people into the mix, including Willie Mason, who is a uh, young, folky, popular in the emo world. He's Connor Oberst endorsed. There's some uh, other departures as well. We'll talk about those more in a minute and give our opinions on the record. But first, let's hear a song, Greg. This is Come Undone by Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan from Hawk on Sound Opinions.
3: Stumble and I fall. Your time is on
5: my side
3: Don't make sense of it all Despite my foolish pride It's got me on my knees Tearing up my heart And Shaking at my bones Tearing me apart I can't get close to you. I come on down. I come on.
4: Come Undone from Mark Lanigan and Isabel Campbell, their third album together called Hawk. Jim, you mentioned that they sort of play off of that Hazelwood Sinatra formula, the orchestral pop. They've been digging into atmospheric blues and country and folk, a lot of rich American traditions on their last couple of records. On the third record, that formula in danger of being played a little bit. We kind of get the sense of what they're going to sound like. You know, You've got that whiskey voice that Lanigan has, and you've got that wispy voice of Campbell. But to Campbell's credit, she stretched them a little bit on this record. As the arranger, producer, songwriter, she's taking a few more chances sonically. You've got the Get Behind Me, a Roadhouse Blues song. You've got the gospel flavor on a song like Lately. And that song, Come On Down, I think is just genius. The James Brown orchestrated soul references there it reminds me a lot of it's a man's world which is ironic because you know in this world it's clearly the woman's world and those innovations those few sonic detours really make this third collaboration work for
5: me so i'm going to go with a bite rating on this one Greg, I'll go with a Buy It as well. There are some great moments on Hawk, although I do think it is the least of the three collaborations between these two. I don't particularly care for the Hank Williams or Towns Van Zandt covers. I like when Landigan is singing the songs that Campbell wrote and when they're singing together. You know, some of it we've heard before. Some of it's done extraordinarily well, like that riff on the James Brown tune. I'm most intrigued by Get Behind Me the idea of these two now having done hazelwood sinatra and going in a much louder garage rock vein that gets me kind of excited i hope that's what they do this is uh, fine as the hazelwood sinatra trilogy putting a cap on it let's see what they do next but yeah two biots for this record i tell you
6: little buddy this whole island is bewitched
7: remember we were shipwrecked together
5: from time to time here on sound opinions greg or i like to take a trip to the desert island pop a quarter in the jukebox and play you a song that we can't live without greg what do you got for us jim i'm inspired by our
4: review of isabel campbell and mark Lanigan, and the the names hazelwood and sinatra came up nancy sinatra ...was a struggling young singer in the early 60s... ...trying to get out from under the shadow of her famous father. Lee Hazelwood was a famous producer and songwriter and arranger. He'd already had a a string of hit songs with the surf artist... ...Dwayne Eddy in the late 50s and early 60s. And he approached Reprise Records about working with Sinatra... ...and began writing and producing her records. In the process, he turned her into sort of a proto-feminist icon... Not many people may realize that he wrote, These Boots Are Made for Walk, and they're going to yep. walk all over you for <laughs> Nancy Sinatra. And it's interesting because I think feminists and sadomasochists can both find a certain amount of pleasure in those songs. Well, it's
5: well known that Daddy Frank didn't like Nancy spending time with Lee Hazelwood.
4: Hazelwood was kind of a shady looking character. Let's face it, he was about 11 years older than Nancy. He was, you know, 40 ish when they got together. She was still in her 20s. You know, he had that sort of droopy porn star mustache and that Oklahoma accent. <laughs> It was just a little weird, but at the same time produced some of the most resonant pop music of that era. They called it psychedelic cowboy music that he was writing for her, and she in turn was kind of the innocent to his more experienced male figure, Svengali figure, if you will. Their greatest moment was Some Velvet Morning, a duet. Whenever Hazelwood sang with Nancy, that's when things really got weird and really got creepy. And Some Velvet Morning is the absolute pinnacle of their duets together. A beautiful track. There's an element of menace in that Hazelwood baritone, an element of innocence in in Sinatra's soprano, and together they work wonderfully and really set a template for all future male-female duets. This song has been covered countless of times since then. Some Velvet Morning from Lee Hazelwood, Willard and Nancy Sinatra from 1967 on Sound Opinions.
1: Some velvet morning when I'm straight.
5: That is The Immortal Some Velvet Morning by Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, a fine Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Well, next week we're going to line up some fall album releases. It's a big time for new releases. We're going to run down a bunch of them next week. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen Gordon. Our producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lin. In classic road trip terms, they are the Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty of this team. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori, Southside Malatia. Well, he was somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take <laughs> hold. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm in the with bubble-
0: This is Ethan from Burlington, Vermont. I don't see what the big fuss is with the Beatles and the iTunes catalog. It's not like you need to buy the Beatles from iTunes in order to have them in your iTunes library. I bought the box set discs and I put them into my computer and clicked import. Lo and behold, I have Beatles in iTunes. Thanks. Love the show.
6: Hi, this is Rick in New York. I wanted to thank you for your very treasure episode. You know, music discovery is the number one reason I listen to sound opinions, so these are always my favorite shows. On every one, it seems like I'm always getting something I never heard of that I really love, so thanks a lot for that. I do have to say, though, that you had me cracking up when Jim took pride in reminding Greg that he was the first to catch on to Crystal Castle's. If nothing else, that line confirmed the spot-on brilliance of LCD sound systems owed to aging hipsters
5: losing my edge.
6: up the great show. I look forward to the next Buried Treasures, regardless of which one of you gets to take credit for finding the best new indie band first. Thanks.
0: This is Corey from Queens, New York. I just listened to your last Buried Treasure show and would like to offer my pick for a Buried Treasure. It's a band from New York called Two Seconds to Midnight. They're currently listed as having ten members including people playing all sorts of string instruments, which are put to good use because there are some very well done string arrangements. The lead singer, Zig Payton, has an incredible range and is a killer guitarist. There are some dark moments on this album and some beautiful moments, but the best tracks are when they have long rock out instrumental sections, such as the song, Eating Frenzy, and this track, Optimism. For me, this band went rapidly from "Hey, I know this cool local band." to "Oh my God, this is one of my favorite bands." Check out their debut album, Architecture, and you'll see why I got so excited.
6: Hi there, this is Kevin from Chicago. Just getting done here in the uh, the T Rex interview with Visconti. Very lovely, as always. Very disappointed that the only remark about
4: Sid Barrett was a strange background, offhanded comment that sounded like a backhanded compliment, if anything, even though I know, I think it was Jim who said it, I'm sure you're a Sid Barrett fan. I I wish people would uh, bring Sid Barrett a little more to the front.
5: The appearance
6: of
4: T-Rex, his actual physical appearance, everything about it is straight from Sid Barrett in 1966. Go
6: watch the videos.
5: But, you know, it just always makes me sad.
6: Where's the left of Sid? He, he made glam rock what it is. Nobody would have been wearing mascara if he didn't do it. That's all. Still a great show. Love you guys. no
7: Please leave us here.
4: No more messages.